The scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, at Exilic, and if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, last week we started a new sermon series called The Go Campaign. Now, what is The Go Campaign, and why are we doing The Go Campaign? Well, if you turn uh, in your uh, bulletin to the inside front cover, uh, there, there you'll see a welcome, our mission, and our vision. The mission of an organization is what it wants to do, the vision of, of an organization is who you want to be as a result of executing the mission. So who do we want to be? We want to be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Now, I'm not going to go into depth too much on this because we have a DNA series coming up in January, but I do want to point out two things. One of the phrases is we want to be a people who think, think critically. And I would say that we as a church have been great at that, thinking very critically. But when it comes to acting positively, I would say that we haven't been as good at that. And so one of the reasons why we're doing the Go campaign is for it to serve as an initiative for us to act more positively to three places and to three people. And the three places are the church, the city, and the world, and the three people are the least, the last, and the lost. And so in an effort to sort of uh, for this sermon series to be a catalyst for that, we're devoting three sermons to the least, three sermons to the last, and three sermons to the loss. Now here is the question as we kick off uh, our first demographic. Who are the least of these? Well, if you take a look at verse 40, this is what it says. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
This phrase, the least of these, is one of the most iconic phrases in the Bible, and perhaps it is one of the most misunderstood. Because whenever people hear the phrase, the least of these, they automatically assume that it is anyone that is disadvantaged in our society and our world. But if you take a closer look at verse 40, it specifically says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And so what this passage is saying is that the least of these is not just anyone that is disadvantaged in our world, but it's specifically referring to Christians, brothers and sisters who are disadvantaged within the walls of our own church. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is preaching and a group of people come up and they say, Jesus, your mother and brother are outside waiting for you and they wanna to talk to you. And Jesus says to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hand to the disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does the will of my heavenly father, they are my mother, my brother, and my sisters. And so what this passage is specifically referring to is those that are disadvantaged within our own community. Now, does that mean that we should not care about people that are outside of our community, in our city, and our world? Absolutely not. Scripture is pervasive and replete with passages about loving our neighbor. Uh, Vladimir Solovyov, the Polish poet, once satirically said, man descended from apes, therefore let us love one another. And what Solovyov was saying is that within an evolutionary Darwinian perspective, there really is no moral reason for us to love one another. There are pragmatic reasons, but not really immoral reasons if we're just a random collocation of atoms smashing back and forth. But in Christianity, why should we love one another? We love one another regardless of what we believe or disbelieve, regardless of sexuality or race. The reason why we ought to love one another is because every single person is made in the image of God and therefore has dignity and worth. You know what that means? It means this. You have never laid eyes on someone that does not matter to God. You have never laid eyes on someone that doesn't matter to God. And so yes to the question, should we love our city and our world? And yet at the same time, scripture does seem to prioritize that we need to learn how to love one another first. Why? Because unless we're healthy, our city and our world cannot be healthy. So it has to start here in many ways this is a training ground for us to love our city and our world. In Galatians chapter six, it says, let us do good to all people, comma, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And there you see it again. First and foremost, we have to learn how to love one another because it would be hypocritical for us to love the world and not love one another. You know why I say that? Because it's a lot easier to love people you don't know than it is to love people that you do know. This is one of the reasons why we have church membership. And as Brian once said, what is church membership? And the most theological definition I can give you, it's simply a DTR. And the church is saying, we wanna be with you. Do you wanna be with us? And for those of you who hate ambiguity, you would really appreciate this because the church is saying, I really wanna be with you, but where do you stand? How committed are you to the relationship that we want to have with you?
The church isn't just a place that you belong to, but it's also a people you commit to. So if I can turn your attention to the first page uh, of your bulletin, I want to read you a quote from Melissa Edgington. And she says, years ago, I was acquainted with a girl who told me that she didn't want friends. I don't want to be obligated to people, she said with a little laugh. I know she was half joking, yet many of us in the church seem to be living our lives the same way, as if we don't want to be bound to help each other out. We want to see each other on Sunday mornings, exchange pleasantries, and head on our way without getting too mixed up in someone else's issues. The truth is that many of us behave as if the Christian life is all about our private relationship with God and has nothing to do with our relationships with other people. Over and over again, though, the Bible admonishes us that the Christian life isn't just an individual pursuit. We are meant to travel this road together, helping each other along, encouraging each other, not being afraid to get involved in each other's struggles. And this brings us to our sermon today, which is ironically about a sermon that Jesus gave, which was his last sermon because this was given two days prior to his death. And in this sermon, Jesus tells his disciples, I have to go. And so the disciples say, where are you going and when are you coming back? And Jesus specifically says to them, it doesn't matter when I'm going to come back. But here's the thing. I want you to live in a certain way until I come back. And so here's the question. How does Jesus want us to live? And so if you look at verses 35 to 40, this is what Jesus says in a parable. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or, and go to visit you? There are a few observations that I wanna make about this parable. Number one, there are two groups of people. There are sheep and there are goats. Observation number two, this passage is very, very repetitive. There are six needs that Jesus talks about, hunger, thirst, uh, the sick, in prison, so on and so forth, and he repeats these six different needs four different times. The king says, for I was hungry, I was thirsty. And the sheep say, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? And then the king says again, I was hungry, I was thirsty. And the goats say, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? And the reason why this parable is so repetitive is because Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. And so he wants to pedagogically drill something into uh, the people's ears and, and into their heads. And what he wants to drill into them are these six different things. Now here's observation number three. Observation number three is this. Jesus identifies himself as one of the least of these. He says, for I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was sick, I was imprisoned. In other words, Jesus identifies himself so closely with the church that how you treat the church is actually how you treat 
Jesus himself. Uh, for those of you who may never have read the Bible before, the New Testament, over half the New Testament was written by a religious terrorist who actively slaughtered and killed Christians, and his name was Saul or Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Greek name. So he didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. It's just the same name in two different languages. So his name was Saul. And one day, Saul is on a road called the Damascus Road, again, to hunt down other Christians. And he has an encounter with the resurrected and ascended Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus has already been killed. He's already resurrected and ascended. And yet he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As far as we know, Saul never even met Jesus. So how is it that Jesus can say, why are you persecuting me? Because that is how closely Jesus identifies with the church and with his people. So much so that the way you treat God's people is the way that you treat him. If you, if you respected me, but you disrespected my wife over and over again, there is a sense in which we can't be friends because if you treat her disrespectfully, you're also treating me disrespectfully as well because the two of us, we are one. The two of us have become united. We are one flesh together. And it is also the same uh, with Jesus and the church. Now, there is, in all, fair, in all fairness, there is no perfect church. And for those of you who have been hurt by the church, which I'm assuming is a great number of us, and there is a high casualty rate, I want you to know that I am sorry. And I also want you to know that I cannot promise you that our church will be a safe haven where no one ever gets hurt. Do you know, do you know why I say that? It's because all of us have attached to us a sinful nature. And because of that, we are a bunch of porcupines constantly pricking one another you will get hurt. And it will not be easy doing life on life with fellow sinners together. But I like what Jackie Hill Perry once said when she said, you know what healed me of my church hurt? The church. As imperfect as the church is, it is what makes it the perfect place for imperfect people. This is the place where you can also simultaneously find healing from the hurts that you have experienced. Joe Novenson is a pastor, uh, a PCA pastor, and he once said, I know that your church is not perfect, and I know that you think the only answer to that imperfection is to gossip about your church. And Novenson says, well, the next time you are tempted to talk smack about your church, I want you to think about this. Imagine Jesus standing right behind you, tapping you on the shoulder, saying to you, excuse me, but that's my wife you're talking about. Jesus loves the church with all of her warts, blemishes, and stains. He loved her so much that he was willing to die for the church. And if that is the case, we must love the church as well because God loves the church. Next observation. And final one, if you, if you take a look at this parable, both the sheep and the goats are surprised that Jesus identifies as one of the least of these. They're both shocked. They had no idea that he was hungry, he was thirsty. 
And, and Jesus, the king, says to the sheep, um, you've done more than enough. You fed me. You, 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 you gave me clothes. And he says to the goats, you didn't. You did not do enough. Now, how is it that the goats didn't do enough, but the sheep did enough, when both of them are surprised that Jesus was actually the least of these? Well, the goat, in many ways, sort of represent, represents a modern secular view of morality. In a modern secular view of morality, we can live however we want, we can do whatever we want, so long as we don't harm anyone else. It's the harm principle. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't harm anyone else. And I think there are two problems with this view of morality from a secular mindset. Number one, all of us have different definitions of harm. Not everyone agrees on the same thing. And number two, it's not enough not to harm other people. That's passive. But we also have a moral responsibility to actively help other people as well. I want to turn your attention again to uh, the first page of your bulletin in a quote from Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God. Keller says, the idea that everyone should be free to live as they desire as long as they don't harm anyone else is self-evident to many today. But why is this harm principle useless and even disingenuous as a guide? People use the harm principle to appear non-judgmental, but the definition of harm always assumes a set of particular moral beliefs. How do you know what harms human life unless you can first define what a good and thriving human life is? Does having sex outside of marriage harm people? The answer depends on how you understand the character and purpose of marriage, which entails a whole set of particular beliefs about human nature, the function of sexuality, and so on. So it's disingenuous to use the harm principle to appear open-minded. Everyone uses harm to mean harm according to my worldview about the nature of things. And I would say that this is also the same for suicide. When someone commits suicide, from their perspective, they can look at it as, I'm not harming anyone else. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. But there's an, another perspective in which suicide does harm other people. It harms your family. It harms your network of friends, which is why in some countries it's even illegal to attempt suicide because of the ramifications it has on society as whole. Why? Because we're all connected uh, to one another. As Christians, it is not enough not to harm other people, but we must also be active in helping other people as well. And this is good news because one day you're going to need help. One day you will need someone else's support to come alongside of you to pick you up uh, when you have fallen. Francis Chan, in the final quote in his book, Multiply, uh, says this, your problems are not just your problems. Ultimately, they belong to the church body that God has placed you in. You are called to encourage, challenge, and help other Christians in your life, and they are called to do the same for you. If you wait until all of your own issues are gone before helping others, it will never happen. This is a trap that millions have fallen into, not realizing that our own sanctification happens as we minister unto other people. And this is precisely what the sheep are commended for. And in this parable, it's almost as if the king says to the sheep, hey, remember that time when so-and-so came to church 
10 to 15 minutes early because it was their first time here and they had just moved to New York from somewhere else, their small town, and they had a lot of anxiety about moving to this big city. They had a lot of anxiety about meeting new people because they didn't know a single soul and they sat on that black chair by themselves and then you came alongside of them and you just sat down next to them and said, hi, what's your name? Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that at all. It was so long ago. Well, whatever you have done to the least of my brethren, strangers, you have done unto me. And remember that time when so-and-so was unemployed for six months and they burned up all their savings in their bank account paying rent and they didn't know what else to do? And so every Sunday after church, you treated them out to lunch? I don't remember that at all. I just wanted to go out and eat. Well, whatever you have done to the least of my brethren, you have done unto me. And remember that time when so-and-so was sick, but they didn't want anyone else to know that they were sick because they felt a sense of shame about it? They didn't want people to think that they were icky, but you knew about it, and you went with them to every single doctor's visit to be a support? That I do remember, because we didn't know what was going to happen. Well, whatever you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. And remember that time when so-and-so's sibling or their parents died all of a sudden? All of a sudden, and you went to their funeral, even though you didn't know that sibling or that parent, but you went just to support them? Whatever you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. These are just some practical ways that we as individuals in our community can love the least of these. But not only individually, but also institutionally. One of the things that we have in our budget is a mercy fund. This is one of those lines in our budget line item we want to see depleted. And this mercy fund is for members of our church who need mercy. And thankfully, members of our community have been using the mercy fund for what? A lot of people have been using it for professional counseling through Redeemer, for whatever issues that they're battling with. And this Mercy Fund is in place to subsidize the cost of very expensive counseling. Others have used it when they've lost their job and they don't know what else to do or how to pay for rent. So there exists within the institution as well a Mercy Fund for those of you who are members of our church. What else do we do as an institution? We have community groups. Community groups are smaller group settings from a Sunday service where you can meet other people so that even if you feel alienated and estranged on Sunday, you have an opportunity to meet people in a smaller group setting. I have to tell you that one of the things that makes us happiest as pastors is when we see strangers become roommates, coworkers, uh, bridesmaids, groomsmen, boyfriend, girlfriend, and even husbands and wives. I can't tell you how happy that makes us feel because we want everyone to belong. The greatest human need is not for food or water, but it is to belong. And so we need to provide avenues for that. What else do we do? We have something called life groups, which meet once a month in even smaller groups of three or four. And with life groups, we put this into the DNA of our church's discipleship because in life groups, you don't get to pick who you do life on life with. Now, why don't you get to pick who you want to do life on life with? Because the church is not a group of friends that you pick, but it's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. 
And so with Life Group, we put it into our training ground so that regardless of whether you have an affinity towards them or not, or the same temperament, or you're an ENF, ENFJ or whatever, you learn how to practice other people's love. It's training grounds of loving people that you might not know that are different from you, but it has to start here. And once we get healthier and better at doing that, then we can do that for the outside world. Now, where will we get the perspective then to love the least of these that are in our own community and one another? Well, I will say that the king, Jesus, is not only one of the least of these who's hungry and thirsty, but in this parable, Jesus is also the king in this parable. And in this parable, the king steps down from his throne and he descends to the city where all the people are at. And when Jesus the king descends from the throne and sees the people, he sees that they are hungry, that they are thirsty, that they are estranged and alienated from one another, that they're naked, sick, and imprisoned. And because he sees that we are like that in this condition, he comes to feed us, give us water to drink, to clothe us, to set us free. Now here's a question, how has he done that? I don't feel hungry, I feel full. I don't feel thirsty or parched. I, I feel very, you know, satisfied. I'm not in prison. I'm not naked, I have clothes. So when has Jesus ever done, ever done this for me? Well, almost every week, almost every week, I talk to someone that says, I want more out of life. And I don't know what it is I'm searching for, but I want more meaning and I want more purpose in life. And the truth of the matter is, that's every single one of us. All of us experience a void deep down in our hearts. We hunger and thirst for more. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and I am the living water. He who eats of me and drinks of me will never hunger or thirst again. And obviously, that is a metaphor for this, that Jesus can quench you and satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this world can. But when were we ever estranged and alienated from God? The Garden of Eden, kicked out and exiled east of Eden, and ever since then, we have been at enmity with God. But in the gospel, Jesus adopts us into his family and calls us his sons and his daughters. Well, when were we ever naked? I have clothes on right now. Well, imagine this. Imagine taking off all your clothes right now and walking down 31st and Broadway. What is the first feeling you would experience? Shame. Nakedness is a symbol of shame. And when do we experience shame? When we've done something that we shouldn't have done. And Jesus comes and he clothes our shame and he covers us so we won't experience that shame anymore. And what does he cover us with? His clothes of righteousness so that we don't have to feel that guilt and shame anymore. When were we sick? Well, over and over again, Jesus is healing different kinds of people, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the dead. He never cures anyone of male pattern baldness. He never cures anyone of, of uh, an ingrown toenail. Why does he always cure people that are blind, deaf, the crippled, walking crooked ways, and the dead? Why is it always those kinds of healings? It's because all of those diseases represent our spiritual blindness our spiritual deafness that we can't hear God, the fact that we never walk the straight way, but we walk the crooked way, and the fact that we're all dead in our sins and transgressions, and God opens our eyes so we can see him. 
God opens our ears so that we can hear. He opens our hearts and resuscitates us back to life again. And when were we imprisoned? Well, sin enslaves us and holds us bondage. But Jesus came to set the captives free. That is what Jesus came to do. And when you understand that we are the least of these, and Jesus is the great king who descended from his throne to meet our needs, because we have experienced mercy, at that point now it is easy to give other people mercy as well. Now the truth of the matter is, even when we understand that it is difficult to love people the way that we ought to, in fact, the person that you love the most is yourself. And yet, instead of experiencing the judgment that we deserve like the goats, judgment day is moved from the future all the way to the past. Our judgment day is moved from the future to the past 2,000 years ago, and the king takes our judgment in our place so that judgment would now pass over us even though we don't love one another the way that we ought to. And instead, mercy triumphs over judgment, as Jesus' brother James would say. What does it mean for mercy to triumph over just judgment? This is a military word. To triumph over something means to, be, to have victory, to defeat it. And here what James is saying is that mercy triumphs, defeats judgment because judgment day was taken in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. And when we understand that we are all recipients of the mercy of God that we did not deserve, at that point it becomes easy to dispense mercy to other people. And I'll close with this picture. Uh, I'm an urbanite, so I don't know this for sure, but from what I hear, mango trees, uh, to go with that theme, when you cut off a branch of a mango tree, an entire branch, supposedly all of the other branches' nutrients go to that one area that is cut off. And it is my hope and prayer that we as a body of Christ, whenever we see someone that has been cut off and is hurting, that all of the nutrients of our body would go and meet the needs of the person that is hurting. That is my prayer for our church. And the healthier we get at doing this, it'll be a lot easier to love our city and our world. Please pray with me. Father, uh, your word says that this is love, not that we loved you, but that you first loved us. And so may that love compel us to love one another. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.